0: Welcome to History 605, the South Dakota State Historical Society's podcast, where we talk to historians, curators, filmmakers, artists, and authors about how they interpret the past. Think we can meditate and wonder whether our descendants, because I think they'll still be here, what they will think about us. And let us hope that at least they will give us I'm Dr. Ben Jones, South Dakota State Historian and Director of the State Historical Society. Join me and our guests as we think historical.
1: So it is most appropriate and fitting that in our first year of our second century that this should also be a year of reconciliation between the Indian people and the non-Indian people alike.
0: History 605 is sponsored by the Groover Family Trust and done in partnership with South Dakota Public Broadcasting. Welcome to the show. Welcome to History 605. Today on the show, we have Julie Brew. Julie is the director of the Lake County Museum. Julie started in her position in 2020 uh, after having grown up in Minnesota, earning degrees in history and historical administration from Eastern Illinois University and she has experience working in local history museums at the Sulin Heritage Museums, as well as other locations in, in Minnesota. Interestingly, she and her family lived in Belgium and Ireland prior to moving to Madison, South Dakota. Julie, welcome to History 605.
1: Thank you, Ben. Thanks for having me.
0: I'm wondering when you started in 2020, that's a tough year to start a new job, particularly in one that needs people to come to your place uh, with COVID and so forth. What were some of the first issues that you tackled as a new museum director at the Lake County Museum?
1: The pandemic actually kind of worked out well um, for me to make the transition into the new position because we were trying to change the image of the museum. So that gave us, that gave me time to um, do some planning, come up with programming, come up with a plan to try to improve improve the image and um, get into the public.
0: So by maybe having an opportunity to kind of slow down and reset, it proved to be a good thing for you.
1: It actually was. It was very good.
0: Okay. And what's been the response then from uh, the community in Madison and the people around your, your area?
1: The community is very, I, I have the sense that they're very open and excited about the museum. Um, they really feel that it's their own and tells their own history, of course. Um, they've really embraced it.
0: What are some of the collections that you have? What are some of the prize uh, items that people come in and see, see the museum, or what can they see?
1: Our museum, like many many in South Dakota, was founded um, to tell the story of the pioneer that were coming here before statehood in 1889. Our pioneer story starts in the 1860s, 1870s, Um, And one of our most prized, iconic pieces in the museum is our 1879 covered wagon. The Boyd family traveled from Minnesota to Dakota Territory and settled here. That's just one thing. Some of the other things, um, we've got uh, Berdan's accoutrements and uniform from a sharpshooter, um, Harvard P. Smith. He was also a pioneer in Lake County. Okay. Um and he was only one of 13 captains in the Civil War in that particular uh, unit
0: interesting stuff so the so the wagon tell me more about the wagon. I think you've gone through a, a uh, quite a procedure to get that kind of restored and back into shape. I wonder, there's quite a story there I want can you share that we
1: have first of all, I started out by asking the question is is this wagon original? is it are the pieces? Um, the fabric, mostly original, because if it was changed too much, um, I was looking at getting it restored. And if it was original, it was well worth the restoration process and cost. And we, we had Doug Hansen uh, take a look at it. And he's like, yeah, it's definitely 1870s and earlier, 1860s. Hmm. Uh, we decided to fundraise to get the wagon conserved. To tell more of the story about when it originally arrived in, in Dakota Territory. So once Doug had the wagon in his shop and he had it taken apart, he could see all the running gear. It told him a lot of the story of the wagon. Yes, it was hand-done. It looked like it was more Victorian, so he knew it was prior to 1870s. Wow. Um, there was a lot of decorative um, work that was done that wouldn't have been done in the 1870s, 1880s.
0: Where's this gentleman here who did the restoration See, in South Dakota?
1: He's in Lutcher South Dakota, luckily okay. only an hour away from us.
0: How did he establish kind of his expertise in restoring Pioneer-era wagons?
1: He's been doing it since the 1970s, um, and I actually um, became familiar with him while I was working at the Siouxland Heritage Museums. I he see. restored a lot of their uh, horse-drawn vehicles. When we were looking at restoring this, I was pretty excited to work with him because I knew he was an expert in his field. And then um, uh, myself and several volunteers went out to tour his shop and talk a little bit more to him before we committed to the project.
0: How did you get it down there? Even though it's a fairly Um, short distance, it's still kind of an operation to get get it loaded up and get it transported.
1: Doug came over with his trailer. We took the bows off and the and the canvas cover and we've got the a swing a big door that swings out on the back part of the museum so we could roll it out right. and then when it was done in May it went out in November and it returned in May and we were able to roll it right off of his truck and into the back into the museum which was really cool because even though we rolled it over the grass to get it into the museum it gave us a bit of a sense of what it may have been like traveling with it over the prairies. That was that was fun, and to see it outside, again, was spectacular.
0: So having Doug working with it over the course of several months, what were the stories that he learned about it? Did, was he able to discern who or where it was manufactured to begin with?
1: We are still trying to determine that, but we do believe it was made in Mower County um, in Minnesota, um, Leroy, Minnesota, which is um, just south of Rochester. So it wasn't really a factory made. It was locally right. made by local artisans, and we're, we're checking into that, we're trying to verify everything. So that was some unique information about the um, ironwork underneath on the running gear. He also, we had the, a canvas. Top to it, like most covered wagons do. He could tell it was hand-sewn. It was a very heavy type of canvas, heavier than a normal covered wagon would have. And there was a stamp on the side of it, um, a maker's mark. And the canvas came from a maker in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, who made circus tents and also canvas for sailing ships. And so I think we believe what happened is the farmer um, John Boyd got this canvas at a good price, and made do with what he had and made it work.
0: Has it been sitting in the in your museum for decades, or what's what's that in the story?
1: I wish we knew more of the story of exactly how it got here. And usually, with um, artifacts, that's the ideal situation, and many of the things we know. But with the yeah. wagon, we really don't. We know that it's been in the in the museum since, oh, for sure, the 1960s. Because our museum okay. here was built in 1961. And we believe it's been here since then.
0: Well, you mentioned another collection with the sharpshooters. Uh, what was the name of the gentleman?
1: Um, Harvard P. Smith.
0: Harvard P. Smith. I
1: yeah.
0: So when I uh, was on the faculty and administration at Dakota State, I looked at those diaries of Mr. Smith and was uh, really impressed with the, uh, well, a fair amount of detail of what he wrote and uh, some of the content in the diary and so forth. You get a sense of uh, what it was like to have served in the Civil War, and that unit is akin to a very prominent unit. It might be a stretch to say they were, they were like special forces or something, but certainly as a sharpshooter, it's a federal unit, it's not a state militia unit, they get a lot more training, they have a lot more skill required for what they're doing, and uh, they could be engaged in a lot of heavy combat. So unfortunately, I never got back to the Smith Diaries to, to look at them, maybe, maybe someday I will, but can a person who walks in get a view of the diaries?
1: Yes, um, they certainly can. Um, if possible, we would prefer appointments, Um, to come in and take a look at him so I can prepare a space and make sure that we have everything ready for the patron who comes in to look at him.
0: What else might they find out about Captain Smith?
1: They would find out um, why, you know, his involvement in Lake County. He was very involved with bringing the uh, Chautauqua here to Lake County, which was a unique event that drew thousands of people from across the region. He was one of the early town builders, like many of the Civil War veterans. Right. Um, he was very instrumental in cementing Madison's place, making sure that uh, it grew business-wise, population, that people were drawn to to the area.
0: What drew him to the area? Does he does he say in the diaries why he did he homestead there and why he came to Lake County?
1: He's one of the ones that I haven't had a chance to look at. With the wagon, I know that the Boyds came because Charles B. Kennedy, who was the donor of the land for the university, he was a superintendent of schools in Leroy. Um, We can trace a lot of people back to Leroy, Um, not only friends, but family. And one of our townships is named Leroy as well.
0: So you can see them kind of moving as friends and as they go west into Dakota territory.
1: Exactly. I don't think it's any different um, from how we would move today. Mm-hmm. You know, if we know family or friends in a certain geographic location that says good things about it, I think yeah. we're more likely to, to move there just like they did.
0: You mentioned the Chautauqua. This was kind of a national movement around the country. Of course, it's it's kicked off after the town of Chautauqua, New York, but Madison certainly had a, prominent place in the Chautauqua scene or movement. I'm not quite sure. It's not necessarily a a political movement, but it's just a way that communities, well, public speakers uh, would have a stage to share their message. And people from the region or around the country might go to great Chautauquas as part of their vacation plans and their educational plans and so forth, particularly in the summer. What are the collections that uh, you have about the really vibrant Chautauqua events that happened in Madison?
1: Our Chautauqua was one of the few permanent Chautauquas and because it was permanent, um, it was held in higher esteem. Um, It was found more credible. Our Chautauqua ran from 1891 to 1932 and it would draw thousands of people. They had a hotel, a Grandview Hotel, but then they also had tent sites that they would rent out, and there were over 300 sites, and you could rent your tent and maybe a floor and cots, and it really became its own town um, during the two to three weeks of Chautauqua. So some of the things that we feature in our Exhibit and our collections, we have a lot of fantastic, colorful posters from the events. Uh, we have um, programs of what took place each year, and um, photographs of the entertainment that that came. I mean, the it was a a vast array of entertainment and and information that came to Chautauqua, Booker T. Washington. But oh, really? was here. Okay. Um, Eugene Debs spoke.
0: Okay. Are there documents of what their speeches were to, that you maintain, or newspaper articles, or how can you know they were there and what they said?
1: We haven't found um, any transcripts um, of what their speeches were yet. We are still going through the collection and then we're documenting it as well. Um, we're putting it into our uh, Past Perfect um, software database. So, um, but we have programs from each year. So we know, we know who who came to speak, who came to entertain. Um, okay. There's advertisements from local businesses. We okay. have the blueprints from some of the buildings. We have some of the stock certificates, the original stock certificates that were okay. sold to start the Chautauqua.
0: And the hotel, there's, I've seen photographs on, I on your website. There's a photograph of the hotel, kind of the scene that was out there at the lake. What happens to the hotel?
1: Well, um, after the Chautauqua, um, people still tried to run it as a hotel. But then it burned in 1942, and no one ever revived it. Sure. But you can still see traces of Chautauqua if you drive east On Highway 34, you look to the south towards the lake, you'll see signs that say Chautauqua Avenue, Grandview Avenue. So there's still remnants.
0: Well, with your programming, you've been drawing some crowds and getting some media buzz and so forth. I wonder if you travel around with uh, your speakers and how do you kind of select what you're going to do next and what drives the activities and the programming that you do?
1: We, in the past several years, we've been building that program, that programming base that we didn't have before. So, the past couple years, it's been um, okay, we're going to try this and see how it goes. And if it goes well, we're going to continue it. So, one of the first things that we did was called a history happy hour. We uh, um, partner with a local business, uh, Sundog Coffee. We go there for, um, we have a local. Persons speak on a local topic. We have three dates in the fall and three dates in the spring. Also, that was a way to to get out into the community, but then also try to reach a different demographic, a different age. As we know, history draws people at certain ages in elementary school and um, maybe later in life um, as retirees. Mm-hmm. So we were trying to get that very difficult demographic of those middle age, the 20s, mm-hmm. 30s to come in. And I think to a point, it's definitely worked because okay. of the venue.
0: Sundog Coffee is a fun place. And so I imagine people would enjoy that a great deal. How about uh, you're on the campus of a university? Do you have stuff going on with students? Do students come in and do projects and things like that?
1: We do. Um, One of the first things I did as director, I went and I spoke to um, Dr. David Kenley about starting an internship program. Um, We needed to get the students and the faculty into the museum, utilizing the resources. So that was one of the first things that, that we did. And it's grown every year Just recently, we had the sound design, some sound design students come in and we pulled our um, cylinder dictaphone machines, music boxes, phonographs from uh, 1906 and phonographs from 1950, and we had them lined up. And whichever ones we could play safely, we did that because to have the students interact with an object is very different than looking at it on screen because as you know, Dakota state is the quote unquote technology university. So our students are very used to seeing things on screen and experience, trying to experience things to that are two dimensional. Mm -hmm. So when they come in, it's like they find a treasure. Um, And especially when they were able to listen to how, how those things sounded back then. I I think that would elevate their understanding right. of sound design. We work with Dakota State quite a bit. Um, they sponsor some of our exhibits. We have a um, computer exhibit that's been extremely popular. Hmm. Uh, we feature computers, Apple IIe computers, um, Motorola phones that weigh two and a half pounds, Um, And so it's computers from the 1980s all the way to 2000s. We even have an original uh, sign-out sheet for the university. So some of the professors um, can see their names on that sign-out sheet from like 1996. And we're still doing internships. Um, We work with Dakota Dreams. Uh, When they come in, that's uh, with younger students, elementary, uh, middle school students it is that come to the, the campus.
0: Right. So that's the program that gets kind of middle school kids thinking about opportunities for college for them. Right. Okay. And you're a part of that. Well, that's, that's awesome. What has been some of the, I can, I can just see the look on uh, some students faces when they might be confronted with a phonograph from the 1920s and how the audio worked. And so what are the lessons that they take away from how, Say somebody in the nineteen twenties solved an audio recording or a that type of technical problem from the twenties. Are they impressed by kind of how they solved that, or, or what what's the takeaway that they get from that?
1: I think they they are impressed with it. As one example, I had a I have a um, it's called a wire dictaphone, and it was a very short lived technology. Featured with that dictaphone. They had a little box and it had um, what essentially are earbuds and they look exactly the way they do then that they do today. And they were extremely surprised about that, that technology didn't start 10 years ago. It's right. been developing over time. Yeah. They were the sound quality on some things is not great, but to the people back then, who either had to make their own music or entertainment, Um, it was great because they could just put a record on. Um, So I I think that was eye-opening for the students.
0: I was, uh, well, yesterday teaching a a class, and we were listening to a recording of President Kennedy that he made in his dictaphone in the White House. And I knew I was going to have to explain what the background noises were because the students didn't know what a dictaphone was. So I was going to have to explain how that worked and what the purpose of it was and why he was stopping and saying comma and period as he was dictating this transcript that he wanted to have done uh, for the historical record. So uh, the students were certainly interested in what President Kennedy was saying, but it, it was important on my end to kind of set that up with what was the background noise? Because you, you can hear the recording cycle back around the, the, the thunk, the thunk of the machine <laughs> the machinery is working and causing audio problems. And and so I just had to set that up a little bit. Yeah, because they they uh, never see anything like that. So. Oh,
1: absolutely. Uh, we also have sound recordings of General Beetle, but we cannot find um, the technology to play it on.
0: Oh, yes, I'd heard of that. In fact, mm-hmm. uh, one of the faculty at DSU contacted me about seeing if if we had some type of machine that would be able to play that record, this is a call out, I guess. If somebody has a has a device or knows of somebody, uh, one of the listeners of History 605s has a device that would uh, be able to play a. Well, I've forgotten the details now about that record, but it was it was they're a really f- odd speed speed of a record.
1: They're very large. The disc is quite large.
0: Right. And it was a it was a really odd mm-hmm. speed in which it was recorded, so to be. Mm-hmm. So maybe somebody has it has some hints or direction for us. They can contact Julie Brew at the at the museum. Because uh, yes, we would all love to hear General Beetle's voice. I think that's been lost to history. And if if that is indeed General Beetle's voice on that record, that would be amazing to pull that off. Well, Julie, is is there another item of your collection you'd like to chat about?
1: I think that we've hit, hit some of our, our main objects that we have here. You know, people will ask me what we're looking for to uh, help our collection out. And at this point, I'm always interested in photographs mm-hmm. and photographs up to the present. You know, we are lacking photos from the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. And that's all history, and that all tells our story, and that's what people can relate to now. Like, yeah, I want to, I want to see things from the 80s and the 90s. I can relate to that.
0: Yeah, that's, that's another shout-out. Yes, it's another shout-out. I think we, our historical museums and archives around the country are probably struggling in that very era of what uh, seems odd to say this, but late 20th century history. No. Uh, it's kind of a gap because right, people haven't donated those things. Maybe they've got a they've collected an album of homecoming parades of in Kimball for years and years and years, and uh, they're wondering if that has any historic value. And the answer is it does. If it's a long gathered collection of an event over a period of years, it would tell a historical story. What do you think about the the, the value of local? historical societies and museums what what do they add to the life of the community?
1: Um, I think they are one of the nonprofits and one of the organizations that um, are a quality of life uh, organization in the community uh, we add value to that local community with our programs with our research facilities just telling the history of why people were here, why they came, why they stayed, or why they left. Um, we also have a interesting situation, like most university towns. Um, not only did we have the early pioneers coming as immigrants, but we have em- immigrants from 30 different countries in mm-hmm. DSU, um, also in the community. We've got many type. of people from other places. But I think we can all come together through history and museums and have that conversation. Museums are are a place to to explore, but also ask questions about where we're at now and how did we get here? Why is this place important?
0: Certainly a big topic of debate in modern life today is identity, and history certainly informs a local identity. And Certainly uh, the Chautauqua and the Pioneers, but also the late 20th century life, and maybe even we're approaching early 21st century life. Um,
1: Definitely. We definitely are approaching that. So things don't have to be 100 years old to be in a museum.
0: And uh, your collection about the technology and computers and personal computers, and I'm sure students get a kick out of that. And seeing 100-year-old earbuds or their equivalent is always exactly. how people solve similar problems as the technology changed, but the the desire to, in that case, listen to something, an audio recording, make it a high-quality audio recording to pass along a story or a piece of information or technical knowledge about something is, is a well-worn human need.
1: One fun piece of information that has come out of our computer exhibit is we have an Apple IIe that has the Oregon Trail on it. And people are able to play it, play that. And that spans, you know, 40 years and it connects people from our generation all the way to the present. Everybody knows Oregon Trail. So it was fun because it's a, it's a floppy disk that we use. And when we turned it on, I was like, oh, my gosh, I haven't heard that for decades, that whir, that sound of that disc spinning and clicking. Um, yeah. That was a lot of fun to hear that. Yeah, and when right. the students hear it today, they're like, you broke the machine, you broke the computer. It shouldn't sound like that. No, nope. <laughs> that's the way it sounded.
0: Well, yeah, there's that kind of nostalgia for the old fax machine whir or the, or the buzz and the, and the floppy disk. Yeah, it's interesting that they think it's broken. No, yes, that's, way it, that's just the way it worked. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Julie, thanks a lot for joining us in History Six Hundred Five. It's been a great walk down uh, memory lane and nostalgia lane and uh, historical lane. And good, uh, it's impressive to see what the, what's been done with the wagon. Thanks for picking up that mantle. And po- folks want to come to your museum. What are your hours?
1: At this point, we're open Monday through Friday, ten to two. But we are open. Um, we can open for the public um, Saturday or Sunday by appointment or in the evenings by appointment. But we also do have a lot of um, um, events okay. in the evening. Um, we try to get people into the museum as well as going out into the community. So we try to s- strike that balance. So mm-hmm. just give us a call.
0: Great. Well, Julie, thanks a lot.
1: Thank you for having me, Dr. Jones.
0: We'd like to thank Howard and Dorothy Groover for their passion for history and the support of the South Dakota State Historical Society. It's through gifts such as theirs that we're able to tell South Dakota's history. We'd like to thank our partner, South Dakota Public Broadcasting, and most importantly, we'd like to thank you for listening. Please rate us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to find podcasts. We'll be back in a couple weeks with another episode of History 605.